You're listening to The Drew Marshall Show, Canada's most listened to spiritual talk back program. Sun's up, mm-hmm. looks okay, the world survives into another day, and I'm thinking about eternity. Some kind of ecstasy got a hold on me. Well, Stephen Lewis is one of Canada's most respected commentators on social affairs, international development, and human rights. As a matter of fact, uh, McLean's chose him as their inaugural Canadian of the Year in 2003 and 2005. Time named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. I mean, this is the same category as the Dalai Lama and Nelson Mandela. Are you getting this? Lewis is also the recipient of the Pearson Peace Medal for his outstanding achievements in the field of international service and understanding. Folks, the list just keeps going here. In 2001, U.N. Secretary General Kofi Annan appointed Stephen Lewis as his special envoy for HIV-AIDS in Africa. The Stephen Lewis Foundation, of which, of course, Lewis is the chairman of the board, is similarly dedicated to easing the pain of HIV-AIDS in Africa. In his 2005 international bestseller, Race Against Time, Searching for Hope in AIDS-Ravaged Africa, you can really hear this heartfelt and sometimes maddening look at how the world is failing the UN's eight Millennium Development Goals, which were meant in part to cut poverty in half by 2015. And here's the kicker. He's got a school named after him, and he's not even dead yet. <laughs> Stephen Lewis, thanks for joining us. Not at all, Drew. It's, it's, it's nice to know I'm still alive yeah. and, and, and kicking. Yeah. And you must take all of those uh, so-called awards and accolades with a barrel of salt. Oh, you know, yeah. It's the way the world works. I get it. Well, look, uh, the greatest health emergency in 600 years, so says Bono, and uh, 9,000 people are dying every day from disease, poverty, or illness. And the reality is, Stephen, th- th- I don't care. That's the reality. Like, I don't care. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do, and I, it's sort of a hyperbole here, but we, we just don't care. Well, I'm not sure that's true. Uh, I mean, I'm perfectly uh, willing to throw that allegation at governments, uh, because I think uh, it is evident that the governments, certainly of the G8 countries, the major countries in the world, have acted with uh, lamentable negligence in response to the crisis on HIV and AIDS, but in the broader crisis, the Millennium Development Goals and poverty and, and disease more broadly defined. But the people of these countries, as I wander across Canada, and I just finished a tour of American universities and speak from time to time in Europe, there's an intense commitment at the rank-and-file level which seems not to have translated into political commitment. But if the government is a representation of the people, and the people I rub shoulders with day in, day out, the, the hockey players or the cowboys or the, you know, the folks at Tim Hortons, the folks out in the country, the, Stephen, we don't care. Well, I'm reluctant to believe that because nothing that I have seen uh, gives it credence. Uh, even even the work with the foundation, the astounding generosity of uh, of Canadians is enough to bowl you over. I I had lunch just a few weeks ago with Dave Toyson, that most yes. wonderful man who heads World Vision, one of the lovely, most principled people I've encountered in this international development work. And Dave was talking about the extraordinary strength and support of of world vision and how it grows i think there has to be a distinction made between the publics of the world 
and the governments of the world. And if the governments are representative of the people, it doesn't mean they always do what the people would wish. People foolishly vote in certain ways from time to time and don't get their expectations realized. How many people who voted for George Bush expected him to invade Iraq? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I get it. Well, I think I get it. I, I mean, one of the comments that keeps getting bantied about is that God and humanity will not accept as an answer to the AIDS epidemic in Africa indifference. True. That's that's a that's a, a lovely quote, and it's uh, and I think that is absolutely valid. And and therefore, those of us you started off with a quote from Bono: "Look at the extraordinary expenditure of energy of the guy." Those of us who care about these things deeply and have the privilege of pursuing them, because not everybody does. Uh, if we keep hammering away, then I think it's possible to move things forward. I mean, the pendulum does swing. Sure. The heartbreaking thing is we lose so many millions of people along the way. I mean, that, that, that's just what I can't cope with in Africa. When I had uh, Kay Warren in, in my studio here, I looked across the desk at her and looked into her eyes and, and said the same thing because I, I really, I mean, I hate you know trying to beat a dead horse here, but we don't care because they're over there. We don't care because, let's face it, they're uneducated blacks. You know, Africa is a corrupt continent trapped in a corrupt and selfish world. They pay $200 million every week to old debts to, to other corrupt leaders. I mean, are people dying of AIDS or, or are people dying of corruption? Well, uh, there there is this easy charge of leveling corruption in Africa, which at one point had a lot of substance to it. There, there's no question of that, although it should also be uh, remembered, <coughs> excuse me, and I think you would probably agree, that the corruption was sustained by the West and by the East as Africa was whipsawed during the Cold War. I mean, remember, this is a continent which has had slavery and then colonialism, and then it got trapped in the Cold War between East and West, played off one against the other, so they were supporting dictators like Mengistu in Ethiopia, Mobutu in Zaire, uh, dictators who were ravaging their own countries with the money they got, mostly from the Western world. And then they were subject to ridiculous policies by the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund in the 1980s and 1990s. Africa's only been independence, Drew, for... for, for Oh, since 1957, first Ghana. That's that's going to be uh, 50 years this month, as a wow, matter of fact. Wow. And then uh, and then Zimbabwe, I guess, became independent in in 1980. That's just 27 years ago. It's like a a moment in history. It took the British 1,832 years to have the first reform bill and elect people to Parliament, for God's sake. Why do we expect a, a continent which has been subject to such manipulation to perform in perfect democratic harmony from the word go? And the truth is that many countries are now democratically elected and re-elected, and you only have a handful of really corrupt nations, and they're working at it. It's tough, but they're working at it. Hmm. You are a fascinating man to listen to. The, the amount of knowledge that pours out of your mouth just puts the rest of us to shame. Not, not, not. No, I'm, I'm serious. And, and, I, and I think in some ways, Stephen, you're almost too educated. You know what I'm saying? You, you, you have so much information in your brain that the rest of us schmucks down here in, in, uh, in normal land... It, sometimes it's hard to grasp. Yeah, but you see, you're 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 insulting me cleverly, and I understand that. You know, when I was in politics back in God knows the sixties and seventies, it was the same charge leveled. Oh, Stephen, you're too clever by half. Or if you got elected, you'd have everybody in Ontario cutting sugar cane in Cuba. <laughs> uh, I mean, those, those were the kinds of things that were leveled. I I don't I speak to a lot of audiences, and I don't get the sense that they feel diminished by either content or argument. They differ. 
they disagree. They're very tough in question period. I love that. Hmm. But uh, but I don't. I, I mean, Good turn. Whatever comes out of me comes out of, yeah. out of me. I can't change it. Is education the key? I mean, yeah. uh, you yeah. know, it seems that uh, if if it is the key, though, because that's what I keep hearing when I was down at the International AIDS Conference last year. That's that's that was the chime that kept going. Education, education, education. But has education brought AIDS under control in America? Apparently not, because the uh, numbers which uh, once leveled off are rising again. I guess people become a little more reckless when they figure there's a cure, and there are antiretroviral drugs which keep people alive. Hmm. So there's a tendency to lapse into uh, unprotected sex again. Sure. Uh, and but but you said, Stephen, you said that education is the key, though. Yes, I believe that. And I, I believe that education, particularly for girls, in, in developing countries where there's so much gender inequality, where, where there is no uh, control over their own sexuality on the part of women and young girls, and, and they can't say no to predatory sex, they can't say uh, we want to negotiate safe sex, they can't say wear a condom, they can't do any of those things. There's such inequality, it means that you have to empower girls and women, and the way you do that is through education. But then, you know, this comes back to the business of policy. When you get uh, an outfit like the World Bank saying to a country, we'll give you a loan if you impose school fees on education, it means that we now have a situation of millions of orphan kids who can't get to school because they can't afford to pay the fees. You know, our policies come back to haunt other countries. Well, if Africa is indeed this sort of uh, uneducated a chasm of macho male destructive practices then then if we keep saying education is the key then the, the women are not going to get the education if they're as controlled and undermined as as we're we're hearing they are is education the key you say well, yes but it's not working in north america how is it supposed to work over there well if you're going to tell me that it's uh you know it's a uh an uneducated chasm of macho male uh, practices, uh, you're starting to use language which, uh, you know, what you're accusing me of. Sure. Be, be careful. No, well, but this is what I'm hearing, Stephen. I mean, I have not set foot on the continent, okay? I haven't. My ignorance is supreme. I live in Wonderbreadville up with horses and cattle, okay? Okay. My life is comfortable. But this is the stuff I keep hearing. Well, you know... The truth is that Africa is a, a quite lovely continent in many respects. It has an enormous generosity of spirit and human decency at the grassroots level, if ever given a chance. It has tremendous sophistication and intelligence at community level. And if the continent survives the twin plagues of poverty and disease, it will be because of the enormous strength and resilience of people at community level as they fight for survival. Mm. And they understand in Africa, Africa is not an uneducated continent. Africa is a continent where it struggles to maintain education because of the lack of dollars, but it works extremely hard to have an educated pop populace, and it's building. I mean, there are universities in every country now, and there are a lot of skilled professionals, from doctors to lawyers to nurses to civil servants. You're dealing with a continent which, had it not been decimated in places by the virus, would probably now be pretty self-sufficient except that, of course, we prejudice their self-sufficiency by our international policies on trade. I mean, everywhere you turn around, Africa gets trapped. And you say to me, well, Stephen, they're, they're, they're poor and they're black and they're discarded and nobody cares. I, I have to admit 
that when you look back at the Rwandan genocide, you know, 800,000 people slaughtered in 100 days and the world raised not a finger, or you look at what's happening today in Darfur. Darfur, it repeats again. Uh, I mean, what in God's name is going off here? How come millions of people can be seen to be expendable? Well, I, I was I was just saying to uh, to uh, Dean Jones, the word came up uh, again: narcissism, North American narcissism. Uh, yeah. We we just and I keep coming back to this. We don't care. Rwanda happened, and then all of a sudden we go, "Wow, wh- when did that take place? How come we? That's news to us." I mean, Hotel Rwanda comes out and uh, shake hands with the devil with Romeo Dallaire. We had Romeo on the show a little while ago, and it's this wake up call, and oh, I'm we're outraged, and we should never let that happen again. And yet Darfur rolls along just like just like before. Yeah. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. And, I, and I and I I have to say that the that the mantra "never again" has become again and again and again. Yeah. You know, so by the way, I I found it really just while we're talking about this, I found it really interesting this decision that was rendered last week by the International Criminal Court that said that Serbia, as a state was not oh, responsible yes. for planning and executing the genocide but they, in Bosnia, Srebrenica, but they were responsible for failing to prevent genocide. They clearly didn't plan and execute it, but they could have stopped it and they failed to do so. Well, let me make a simple extension here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. what, what happens then about the permanent members of the Security Council? The United States, Japan, uh, sorry, United States, China, Russia, the United Kingdom, and France, are they not then responsible for failing to prevent the genocide in Darfur? Yeah, the term class action certainly <laughs> slides into this conversation quite well, nicely. Well, you're absolutely right. Does not the decision of the court have implications for countries who could be stopping Darfur? I mean, the behavior of the world leaves me... Uh, com- I find it completely inexplicable from time to time, and I admit that. All right, on the phone with Stephen Lewis, uh, anti-retroviral drugs. We got them. Should the pharmaceutical companies behave like philanthropists and and donate all of the drugs? No, but in truth, the generic companies in India are now providing the drugs at prices which were negotiated by the Clinton Foundation and therefore at prices which can be absorbed even by developing countries. So the drugs are beginning to be rolled out, Drew. But they're not getting to those who need them fast enough. That is right, but that's not a problem of not having the drugs. That's a problem of having the human capacity. I okay. Mean, well, there, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's not enough professionals in the world exactly. to teach uh, prevention, uh, to administer treatment, and offer care to those who need it. But here's the thing, uh, from, from our point of view, or from my point of view, with this radio station and having been involved with the church scene for 25 years, there's an enormous pool of untapped talent and energy sitting unused just waiting to be mobilized we're talking about the church churches have the largest volunteer labor force on the planet more than 2 billion members so what if just half of those could be mobilized i don't i don't dispute that but the church in response to the pandemic in africa the area i know best has been very slow drew you probably recognize that yourself yes. it's come alive in the last 3 or 4 years but i'll tell you something i actually spoke at the first international, well, at the first African conference on AIDS involving religious leaders in 2002. It was in Nairobi and Kenya in the middle of 2002. And not until that time had religious leaders, churches and mosques, come together to talk about the pandemic. And that was quite astonishing because the pandemic had been in place for over 20 years. Wow. Wow. So gradually the churches are getting involved. And by the way, you're right. When the churches get involved, they can move mountains. I mean, they have enormous strength on the ground. 
and they do a lot of extremely good work around home-based care and around uh, messages of uh, prevention and, and often a lot of very touching and determined care as well, including the distribution of antiretroviral drugs. You know, the, the wake-up call came for me when I was at the International AIDS Conference last year, and I got to uh, the chance to hang around with Rick and Kay Warren for a couple of days. And I, I, I tell you... The efforts that they're going to, to awaken the masses, I think of that scene out of Torah, 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 I fear that all we've done is, is uh, awoken a sleeping giant. I hope that's what the, the Warrens are all about. I hope they wake the sleeping giant, known as the North American in particular, the North American church. Well, I, uh, I think they're making a huge difference. I mean, I'm, I'm not anywhere near as close to them as you are, because most of my life I haven't been engaged in in a religious dimension right but but i am i mean i i understand what's happening and i i uh, have watched rick warren's work and it's clear that he's beginning to move some mountains and that this is a tremendously important initiative it's like the it's it's like the african-american caucus in congress which uh, at the turn of the century began to take a a greater and greater interest in what was happening in africa and began to make uh, real changes and to uh, amass resources and to to pay attention to what was going on and and when that happens uh, everything shifts I had an invitation not so long ago from World Vision to go out. I guess it was Seattle. They were meeting with around 100 church leaders from the United States, and I had the opportunity to address them. And I remember thinking at the time how much power there was in the room, how hmm. determined these people were, and how late they had come to it. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that. i I got to wonder what, what your opinion is. And I think you're, you're, you're leading us into this uh, quite quite gently. But what is your opinion of of, uh, of the North American church? I mean, we look at televangelists, we look at fancy suits and bad haircuts, and we look at large <laughs> fortresses, you know, million dollar buildings. And you gotta you gotta look at the pain and suffering that you've seen in Africa, and then compare that to the wealth, the apparent wealth of the North American church, and go, people, yeah. wake up! Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that they are gradually waking up. And you know, I'm not inclined to, inclined to be a condemnatory, Drew. I haven't uh, haven't hesitated to go after governments because the the life of the pandemic is the political life of a government. That's what a government's supposed to exist for. Right. It has a Ministry of Foreign Affairs. It has representatives all over the world. It has a Canadian International Development Agency, and all of the G8 governments have development agencies. They have a moral and political responsibility to respond. The churches have an instinctive moral imperative to respond. It's biblically rooted. Mm. This is a matter of ethics. It's a matter of Christian principles and Christian ethics. And they've come to it slowly, but it is a, it is a gathering momentum, and I'm inclined, therefore, to encourage it rather than to savage it. Sure, good point. Good point. All right, well, having, having not set foot on the continent... I need you to draw me in here. It's radio. You got to paint a picture. What is really going on over there? You know, what have you seen? Well, I've seen an awful lot of death, which uh, which I found very, very difficult to deal with. I I, um, I was completely unprepared. I'm not a novice. I'm not a sweet innocent. But I and I've spent a lot of time in Africa. Been back and forth for 47 years, believe it or not. Wow. But I, I, uh, I was not prepared for what I've seen over the last five to six years. And the terrible situation in the adult wards of the hospitals, the pediatric wards where you have five or six children, little infants, uh, 
uh, lying together in one cot and 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 dying with regularity even as you move through the ward so that you're constantly hearing the strangled and anguished cries of mothers you know that the uh, the school children are uh, are often uh, orphaned uh, I was a little school outside Swazi in Swaziland, just outside a community center, not very long ago. 350 kids got together with their t- with their principal, and the principal took the microphone and said, "Mr. Lewis, we're very glad you're here, but I think I should tell you that 251 of my 350 students are orphans." Well, that's 70 percent. I mean, it's unbelievable to think of the of the trauma these kids have sort of seething in their little souls, their little psyches that you have to deal with in the loss of their parents as well as uh, as dealing with them to be fed and to be educated. And then you look through at all the grandmothers. I mean, the grandmothers are unbelievable. All these women in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, I've, I've sat under the trees and talked with them forever, where they bury their own adult children, and then they start parenting again in their 60s and 70s with their orphan grandchildren who have been traumatized by the loss of their own parents. Uh, I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine what's happening here. You have millions of grandmothers looking after millions of orphan grandchildren. Mm. We've never had such a relationship before in human history. It's like a redefinition of the human family. Nobody quite knows where it will lead. Those are the kinds of things you encounter all the time. And in the rural areas, so many women who are extremely ill at home, trying to look after their partner, trying to look after their kids, sometimes dying in their huts while their children stand and watch them die. And yet such determination, such resilience, everybody struggling to make sure that the pandemic is subdued, and if they get support from the West, it will be subdued. Man, I... um... I'm like I know that one of these days. Uh, well, I think most people want to get over to Africa to see to so that it affects them. They know that we're we're desensitized here in in North America, and I'm pretty sure that this will happen in in uh, my near future to to take this trip as a broadcaster. Uh, the sort of the wake up call so that I can come back and be a megaphone. Oh boy, can you ever? You know, the impact you would have would be uh, enormous because. But, but the emotions. I mean. Well, yeah. I mean, Stephen Lewis. My goodness, you're 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 Stephen Lewis. You are the guy who has brought more awareness to this issue from a Canadian point of view than any other Canadian. And and I wonder what this does to you, to your guts. I mean, when I was speaking with Senator Dallaire, you know, everyone knows his story. I mean, under yeah. a park bench, passed yeah. out, and and in the, in the uh, antidepressants he's still on, as he told me uh, not not so long ago. Yeah. What what has this done to your soul? Uh, you know, it's an odd sort of thing. I I, um, uh, I do feel emotionally unstable from time to time, Drew. I don't I don't deny that. I, I feel sometimes so desperate and so despairing that I'm sure I reach a moment of uh, unbalance and lash out sometimes more wantonly and more recklessly in rhetorical terms than I should. On the other hand. I know that futility doesn't lead anywhere. I mean, I mean, you can't indulge yourself. Um, you think of all the people in Africa who are dealing with this day in and day out. What right has a Western observer uh, to indulge himself in, uh, in, in emotional disarray 
when when these people are dying for heaven's sake they're fighting to survive they're so courageous they're so heroic so you grit your teeth and you keep on fighting i'm also ideological i don't deny that i'm a i'm a i'm a democratic socialist i i i do what i do in part because of my own social philosophy my own sense of conviction uh, anyone would have a humanitarian or decent response. You, you go there, Drew, and, and you'll be there for one week, and you'll be so overcome by the images and the sense of the struggle and your own sense that you can do something about it by coming back and alerting Canadians that everybody will attribute to you humanitarian instincts, and they're real. For me, I have a kind of social philosophy about all this. I, I see the pandemic as wrecking social justice and equality, and that drives me crazy, and it's part of the reason I want to fight against it. Good for you. Good for you. Well, let's talk about the UN for a moment. Now that you're officially not on the UN payroll, so to speak, can you speak openly about your frustrations with one of the most impotent organizations <laughs> on the planet? Well, they're often impotent when it comes to peace and security. God knows they aren't very useful when it comes to Iraq or Afghanistan or Iran or, or, or Lebanon or the Middle East. But they do some lovely things in the development and humanitarian arenas, and not enough of that is celebrated. But they're very slow. Oh, my God, they drive me crazy. And I have to say that when I'm on the ground and I'm faced with an emergency... I don't turn to the UN for the answer. I would go to a place like the Clinton Foundation because they move with tremendous speed in response. They don't waste time. They know every minute that goes by you lose another person. Fairly unfair question, but who would be slower, the church or the UN? I think it's a pretty close race. Oh, that's embarrassing. <laughs> that is horrible. Well, oh, my goodness. Maybe I'm taking liberties. No, I, I, no but I get it. I mean, but, I, I think we're on the same but side with that. you know, it's that kind of... It's that crazy incremental bureaucracy yeah easy for you to say yeah bureaucracy it's yeah. just so it's so slow it takes so long everything takes an eternity to get done well the war on aids seems like it's more winnable than the war on terror yes it should be god knows we know what to do we have the antiretroviral drugs we know how to stop the transmission from mother to child during the birthing process we have a sense of what happens when you confront stigma and discrimination directly. We, we know how to get home-based care out to the rural hinterland. There are all kinds of things we can do if we have the resources and the political will. In trying to change the ethical chasm that uh, we see over there, th this, this ethical indifference, which do you think will be harder to, you know, more of an uphill battle? The gender inequality scenario or birth control even i would say abstinence oh i i would think uh, gender inequality is in many ways that's the, the bigger mountain absolutely it's the most deeply rooted difficulty i i think not only in terms of aids but in terms of the devastation visited on women on everything from you know maternal mortality uh, through to sexual violence gender inequality bedevils the world uh, abstinence is one of the vehicles through which we practice prevention. Hmm. Uh, but look, abstinence doesn't work in marriage. It's not possible nor desirable. Abstinence doesn't work among sexually active teenagers. Abstinence has obvious limitations. Then you've got to turn to other things, fidelity, condoms, education, all of the other uh, aspects that have to be mobilized. Hmm. 
I don't want to pull the wool over anybody's eyes here. I, I, I wholeheartedly admit my, and, and ashamedly admit my ignorance for much of this. And I, I'm thankful for the information that has been sent to me by, by the Warrens and, and other people. And here's, here's some information I want to throw out to you, Stephen Lewis, right. just to get your reaction to and help me, help me get this, okay? Right. The ABC Plus. You've heard of that, have you? I've certainly heard of ABC. Okay, well, the ABC Plus is, is uh, ads on the gender equality the gender, at the okay. end. Okay, right. so A, abstain, B, right. be, be faithful, right. uh, C, use condoms, and, of right. course, throwing on the plus, gender equality. Right. All right? Condoms have to be used correctly every time, right. consistently every time, for there to be any hope of prevention. But in long-term relationships where there are multiple partners, people tend to stop using them apparently after after a while because there's a level of trust that isn't present in, in just the casual sex, you know, the, the trucking uh, scenario that we hear so much about. Right. Apparently those people are using the condoms. But in right. this sort of, uh, I don't know, this uh, this long-term relationship, even with multiple partners scenario, there, the, the trust factor comes in so people relax. But the fact is that multiple partners... That, that still increases the risk. Yes. And also to rely on condoms and, and uh, uh, microbicides uh, for women right. uh, without behavior change, is that not short-sighted? I mean, it, it could possibly slow the spread of HIV, but it won't stop it. So don't we actually want to stop it? Is this the difference between risk reduction and risk elimination? And is this where behavior change needs to come into play? But yes. only, only providing condoms or birth control without putting limits on people's sexual behavior is akin to playing Russian roulette. Well, that's not unfair because we have learned that with the best will in the world, even when you make a whole society aware, it doesn't necessarily lead to behavior change. That has confounded people. It's suddenly understood that it's going to take two or three generations to change male sexual behavior, even when they are completely aware of what the dangers are. So it does require, if we go right back to what you said earlier, it does require the most intense education. You've also put your finger on something. This is interesting. You probably may not even even know this, but there was just yesterday in the Washington Post. Yes, you maybe saw I saw that, that article. Yeah. yeah, that fascinating article on multiple partners mm-hmm. and and how that does compromise things and how it does make people relax and yes. have unprotected sex because they assume they're comfortable with all their partners. Yeah, uh, and and I. I mean, it's just a matter of working away at it. And in order to have some hope, uh, Drew, it's worth noting that in Kenya and Uganda and in Zambia, there are significant reductions in prevalence, particularly amongst the 15 to 24-year-olds, after the most intense educational and prevention campaigns. So it suggests that it will work. You just have to keep at it. And the more we learn about things like the multiple partner syndrome, yes. the more we'll be able to keep yeah. at it. Yeah. And if we look at available data between uh, theoretical and real-life effectiveness, we, uh, apparently we're seeing, especially very clearly in Africa, the relationship between more condoms and more AIDS or higher levels of HIV infection or HIV prevalence. With more condoms? Yeah, because like the U.S. now takes blood sample from uh, respondents in behavioral surveys. So we can cross-tabulate behavior with uh, serostatus. This new data from, I think, three to four countries so far confirms what we, what I guess many people are kind of basically new. Namely, condom users turn out to be more likely infective than non-condom users. Now, now, more likely to infect than non-condom? Well, I've never no, seen no, more likely infected... 
Well, they, I mean, I'm, I've, I've never seen any data which suggests that... Macro-international. That, that, that condoms are not... I mean, most of us believe, and there is huge evidence, huge and irrefutable evidence to show that the single most effective preventive intervention is a condom. No question about that. Right. But the question is, as you said earlier, how often is it used, and how many transactions, how correctly is it used, etc. Right. But I don't think anybody could could uh, could kid themselves. Condoms are not nothing is the answer except a vaccine. Well, it'll be interesting when this data it gets published by Macro International uh, okay. out of Maryland. Uh, I guess that's under the USAID contract. So uh, USAID, you know, yeah. 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 Uh, the alternative to condom use, I don't think is 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 not it's not abstinence for most people. No, it, it's it's um, maybe keeping keeping a sex within marriage or right. not or not having multiple sex partners. Precisely. And Precisely. and and that is very real world behavior. I mean, most people in the world having one partner at a time. Well, and but you see, what's interesting about it, as you'll note from that uh, Washington Post article, is yeah. that over the life of sexual activity, people in the West have as many sexual partners. In Africa, they have multiple partners in many countries at one time. And, that's, and that has been clearly a factor in transmission. But the point that all of your listeners should know, Drew, is that is that none of this is mystical. No. Uh, all of it, all of it is being addressed. All of it is emerging. Country after country has come alive to it. They're working tremendously hard on dealing with these realities as a basis for prevention. And there's a lot of work being done with men as well as with women. So, by the way, you mentioned microbicide. We don't have a microbicide yet. We won't have it for four to six years. That's still a, a, a bit off, to put it mildly. And even when we have a microbicide, it will probably be 60 or 70 percent effective. So although it's a wonderful vehicle for your listeners, it's a foam or a gel or a cream which is vaginally applied, which can prevent transmission, that, that is very important to give sexual autonomy to the woman. But we're now beginning to focus, you'll notice, on circumcision. Right. Because the recent studies on male circumcision suggest that for men at least, it can reduce, in, reduce infection by being circumcised by 60 or 70 percent. That's phenomenal. Sure, but again, we're talking of the difference between reduction and stopping. And I yes. know, no, one yeah. certain, maybe there's an idealism in, you know, that kind of flows in between this. But, uh, man, I, I gotta wonder. You know, and obviously I'm coming from the, from the Christian background here, wondering about the, the, the ethics. What are we teaching here about ethics and moral values and, and the Judeo-Christian, uh, uh, biblical moral code, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, I just wonder where all that fits in, you know, because, because I know that the Warrens have taken some heat for this, even though it's been accepted by, uh, by Bush and the cronies, this ABC plus stuff. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I represent the Judeo part of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I understand exactly what you're talking when you talk about rooting it in the, the, the ethical imperative. The truth, I think, is that while we will increase behavior change over time, we will never reach the point where behavior change is sufficiently universal that it will stop the virus or stop transmission. It may reduce it, it will not eliminate it. For that, we've got to have a vaccine. And there is a tremendous scientific, under, uh, scientific inquiry underway, supported by Gates in particular, uh, to, to discover a vaccine, but it may be 10 years off. All right, let's talk about the celebrities and the giga-philanthropists. <laughs> and I hate that word. The big donors out there. Bill Gates, of course. Yeah, Hats off. Hats off. Uh, well, you know, there's Oprah. And there's Alicia Keys, and there's Angelina Jolie, and Brad Pitt, and Richard Gere, and Madonna, and 
Uh, I mean, every time you turn around, there's another celebrity. And I would argue, Drew, that the celebrities are emerging, along with the Bonos and the Geldofs, because there is a vacuum of political leadership. The celebrities are filling that vacuum. Interesting. It's admirable. You know, you get celebrity leadership in the absence of political leadership. It's totally admirable, totally warranted. They raise consciousness. They raise awareness. But they never have the resources sufficient to stop the pandemic. And that's the Achilles heel. Hmm. We don't have the sustainable resources in sight to stop the pandemic. It's not that the commitments haven't been made. The G8 and the others are always making the commitments. It's just that they betray those commitments so well. Well, yeah, as, as again, another quote from Bono, uh, signing of the checks is one thing, cashing them is another. You're not kidding. Bono once told that extraordinary story where he had met with a, with a Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee and poured his heart out about what was required in Africa. And he left and he said, you know, they all had tears in their eyes. I asked them for more money and they all had tears in their eyes and then I left and they reduced the budget. <laughs> I'm telling you, I don't understand it. These people, they, 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 go, they go to Africa, they have photo ops, they see what you will see and what I've seen, and then they come back and it's business as usual. I will never understand it. Insane. I mean, that's a pure definition of insanity right there. I think so. Uh, with regards to the red campaign, you said the companies are going to benefit a hell of a lot more from Bono's name than the global fund is going to benefit from the companies. I think that's I think that's probably true, that, that, uh, that for companies from Motorola to the Gap, uh, the association with Bono has allowed them to put in play a new product line, which uh, enhances their profits. And, uh, and so far, not all that much money has go- gone to the Global Fund, uh, nor will it ever be uh, money of, of, again, of consequence to make the difference. Any amount of money of some millions of dollars is important. Hmm. And I think Bono... Bono and Bobby Shriver, who runs the foundation for him, I I think they were driven to this idea because the multinational corporations were not willing to give money out of their sense of corporate social responsibility. They just wouldn't do it. So they had to find a vehicle to encourage them to do it, and the incentive was, we'll give you even more profit than you have now, and out of the additional profit, you can give a percentage to the Global Fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. Incredible conversation here with Stephen Lewis. I gotta, I gotta thank you for your time because I have complete respect for you, sir. Well, you're very kind. Complete Drew, and respect. I, I was more than happy to have this conversation, and I gotta. I, I mean, I'm crazy about Romeo Dallaire. He's a hero of mine. I love the guy. And when I saw that you were, you will forgive me, speaking to the Romeo Dallaire's and to the Rick Warrens, etc., I thought uh, I would like to be part of the conversation as well. Well, that's, that, you know, I'm, I'm pleased. Uh, any regrets now that you've had a good chunk of time to reflect on the role you played at the International AIDS Conference here uh, in Toronto last year? No, I don't. No, I don't have any regrets on that score. I thought no. it was a fairly good conference, all in all. People were looking at you. I mean, you were the poster child for for Canada here. And then I, I guess there was even a headline that said Stephen Lewis gambles by naming and shaming South Africa. Did the gamble pay off? Oh, I, I'm I'm very pleased to have been part of that gamble, uh, <laughs> Drew, because there's been an astonishing change in South African policy since August. I don't want uh, I don't want to pretend that that was because of Stephen Lewis. There were many, many factors involved, but for whatever complex of reasons, since August, the government has changed its policy, is rolling out treatment, is working with their chief critic, the Treatment Action Campaign. Uh, the Minister of Health, uh, who was uh, a center of controversy, is unfortunately very ill. She has now been replaced. 
the whole AIDS campaign is being driven by the vice president in South Africa and the deputy minister of health, it's astonishing what's happened in six or seven short months. So mm. I, I'm actually glad to have been a part of that. Good for you. Good. For, now, a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned Romeo Dallaire, who, again, I just thoroughly enjoyed that conversation I oh, had yeah. with him. When he shook hands with the devil and subsequently had some sort of fascinating spiritual revelations, I mean, he told me that his faith in God has actually increased as a result of this horrific or- ordeal in Rwanda. Yes, and that's interesting because you'll recall that in the book itself, at the moment in time when he suddenly understands the extent of the sexual violence and the raping and the likelihood of the transmission of the AIDS virus, at that moment in time, he is troubled in his faith. Mm. He said, how is this possible? I'm a Catholic. I believe in God. How is God allowing this to happen? And that momentary shaking in faith was then discarded as he became ever more confident that that you had to believe in things in order to change the world. Sure, sure. it was almost a catalyst that moment. Yeah, I, I, he is such an interesting man and such a jewel. Well, same question then to you, uh, Stephen. Uh, how has all of this affected your spiritual life? I mean, uh, you come from a Jewish background. I, but I don't really, I mean, I don't want to be dishonest. I don't really have a spiritual life. We have a very intense wish for our children and grandchildren uh, to know of their Jewish and cultural heritage and to understand the holidays and what they mean and to, uh, and to have a sense of their Jewishness as they grow. Uh, but on the other side, we, on the other hand, we're, we're not synagogue uh, goers. No. We, we don't belong to a congregation. Fair enough. We just belong to the, to use your words, a sort of spirituality of knowing that we're Jewish. I'm driven more or feel more just about my, I don't know, my, my social philosophy. But I've Steve, always... Stephen, hold on yeah. a second. With the stuff that you have seen, the atrocities, yeah. the, the, uh, the pure, selfish heart of mankind, all the way around, nothing has stirred in your spirit? About, about where is God? If there is a God, how no, could there be? No, and, uh, no. No, that's fascinating. I, I, I don't want to. I, I I don't want to mislead you. It'd be easy for easy for me to say yes, but no, it's no, not, no. It's not true. I I do not think in those terms. Right, right. Uh, but it has stirred in my soul, rather like in Romeo's soul, an absolute determination to overcome it. So so it's a kind of faith. Uh, without having a particular focus on God. You know, the phrase gets bantied around in the Christian circles, the hands and feet of Christ. Thank you for being the hands and feet of Christ. You know, in other words, you're doing something. for. And at the risk of, of, of sounding, I don't know, inappropriate or condescending, I would say that to you. I mean, d- despite the fact that you say that there's, you know, there's, uh, you're spiritually void or, you know, you have a body into some sort of uh, Judeo-Christian um, uh, belief structures, thank you. Stephen Lewis for being being used by God, for being the hands and feet of Christ. Because, my goodness, if the church can't get off its butt, maybe God has to use Stephen Lewis. Well, better <laughs> the hands and feet than the butt, I suppose. <laughs> and, and That's I, my job. <laughs> That's right. my job. And I, and, I, and I don't regard it as insulting or condescending at all, because I know it comes from you from a depth of, of feeling and legitimacy. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. That's, I, that's all I have to say. Stephen Lewis, I've appreciated this conversation so much. I have as well, Drew. Thanks so much for chatting. Thanks, mate. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There's a guy you uh, you got to love and uh, you need to be compelled to pray for. Amazing gentleman, Mr. Stephen Lewis, former U.N. Special Envoy for HIV-AIDS in Africa. 
if you have just listened to that interview and uh, you know you're compelled to do something, there's there's a few things that you can actually do. You can certainly go to the uh, uh, Stephen Lewis's uh, website, the Stephen Lewis Foundation, a great organization. You could go to uh, the Saddleback uh, uh, website where Kate's got some incredible information. She's leading the charge for the battle against HIV/AIDS in Africa with her husband supporting her. And uh, immediately, what, aside from educating yourself and being more well-versed and well-read, immediately what you can do is you can go to my website, drewmarshall.ca, drewmarshall.ca. You can click on the compassion banner on the side, the left uh, column there. Click on the compassion banner, and for goodness sake, will you sponsor an orphan in Africa? Will you sponsor a child in Africa? Will you do it now? What are you waiting for? You just heard the. I think one of the, the things that stood out about that conversation is the comparison between the the uh, the apathy and the laziness, or the, the the get to it factor of the UN and the church. That's embarrassing. Absolutely embarrassing. And uh, it, it, will that continue in your life? Will you continue to be as as impotent as the UN? You being part of the church. My goodness. As I've said many times before on this show, get off your spiritual butts and do something about it. Educate yourself. Spend a, Look, don't take it all on at once. Read a bit here and there. Educate yourself. Understand what's going on. Get out of your backyard. And the first step, I, you know, immediate step, I would say, is right now, sponsor a child with compassion. Please. If you have any more questions about compassion or sponsoring a child, Send me an email through the website. I'm happy to put you in touch with somebody who can give you the answers you're looking for. I realize that we're a well-educated, well, a lot more than we ever have been with the Internet and whatever else. And we want the answers. But sometimes uh, all the answers aren't available right away, and sometimes you just need to, to act. And that's what I would again say. Go to our website, drewmarshall.ca. Click on Compassion, the Compassion banner. There are about ten children, faces of children right there. You can read their stories. You can see the faces of the children right there. Anyway, I'm rambling now. That's what happens when I get thrown a curve. And that's what uh, Stephen Lewis just did with me. Tremendous uh, conversation with him. If you missed that, we're going to post that on our website later this week. Um, you want to sign up for our weekly email updates, we'll send you an email, let you know when it's up there. Okay. And of course, a, a great conversation earlier with Dean Jones, Hollywood actor. Well, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, is there anybody out there who thinks that HIV AIDS is God's wrath on the gays? That's a conversation that comes up in the Christian community a lot. I mean, is that, is that your opinion? And if it is your opinion, can, can you defend it biblically? And if you don't think that God sent HIV AIDS to punish the gays, then what do you say to someone who still thinks that way? And if it is God's judgment, does that mean we respond any differently to the infected person? Let's talk about that when we come back from our break. Stay with us, folks. Like what you've heard? Listen again online at drewmarshall.ca.